It's called uh, Easter Road Trip, and uh, today I'm going to take us to the next, uh, the next stage of our, our road trip together. Let me just ask you a quick question. How many of you on a road trip happen to, have you, have you ever discovered a new favorite place to eat on a road trip? Anyone had that experience? You found a new favorite place to eat while you're on the road? Okay, lots of you have had that experience. Um, sometimes... Uh, like road trips are fun, lots of great things, you know, maybe you sing the songs in the car, maybe you have an argument in the car, <laughs> maybe your dad had to stop the car, I don't know if that ever happened, don't make me come back there. Anyhow, um, road trips are amazing, they're really fun things, and uh, today I want to talk about one aspect of a road trip, and that's actually uh, the roadside food stand, or the food truck, or maybe it's, uh, it's a fruit truck. Or maybe it's just a restaurant you discovered along the way. Um, do you guys have a favorite place to stop when you... I mean, it's funny. We always travel to Calgary. I, I, I don't ask people about... When you go to Winnipeg, where do you stop? Because most people travel the other way. But when you go to Calgary, where do you like to stop? How many people... Every time you go to Calgary, you stop somewhere in Swift Current. That's your hand. Your, okay, okay, Swift Current. Lots of Swift Current people. How many of you guys stop in Medicine Hat? You definitely stop in Medicine Hat. Okay. Okay, maybe you got a favorite place to eat there. Um, okay, uh, how many of you like to stop in Brooks and have a lot? Oh, oh. <laughs> Don't you like beef? Oh, you just like your beef cooked, I get it. Um, Strathmore? Okay, somebody, you see the last meal before you hit Calgary. And some of you, how many of you don't stop? You just go all the way to Calgary. Wow, That's, that won't last. As you get older, <laughs> you'll realize you can't do that. You, how many of you are married to that person who never stops? Oh, okay, okay. That's why we come to church, so we can pray for each other. You know, lots of stuff can happen on a, on a road trip. And I, I often think about, you know, when I think about the roadside food stand or the concept of where you stop to eat, uh, sometimes you really make a memory there. In fact, that's sometimes why you keep repeating going to that spot, whether it's an ice cream stand or, or a place that serves a certain type of food or just that it's in a certain location. We always stop here because we can go to the bathroom, we can de-stress a little bit, relax, get away from the road noise and have a bite to eat. Um, but lots of things can happen in a spot like that. Uh, maybe you're traveling with a few buddies and, and uh, you've been... You've been maybe sleeping in the back, and that's sort of when you emerge. You know, you sort of wake up and you sort of join the road trip, really, at the roadside uh, food spot. Or maybe you're in the front and you're talking with the driver, but it's someone in the back who's straining to get in the conversation but can never quite get in part of it, and eventually they give up. But when you get to the roadside food place, you suddenly have a conversation with them, sort of including them in the adventure, and you get to know them a little bit better. Uh, maybe when you sit face-to-face in the eating place, you have a different type of conversation than you have when you're, both, when you're all facing forward. And suddenly new topics come up and, uh, and people uh, get a little bit more real maybe when they sit face-to-face. Maybe people drop their persona. Maybe they've been traveling long enough now that they feel that they can trust you. And uh, they drop the persona. Maybe they've been sort of carrying themselves a certain way because that's where they think that they'll be accepted but now they just get really real. And uh, as you sit at the food's place, uh, they really tell you what's going on inside. A lot can happen on a road trip. And a lot can happen uh, 
where you, when you stop on a road trip. And today we're, we're talking about a transformational road trip found in Luke chapter 24. Uh, some of the verses that were quoted this morning were out of uh, this passage. But let me just uh, read from Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. And we're going to hear about a, a first century road trip. No car involved. All walking. Seven miles, 11 kilometers, whichever way you, you like to think of it. Luke 24, 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I, I find lots of this pa these passages actually quite humorous. To ask the only person who really knows what's going on, are you the only person who doesn't know what's going on? I mean, you know, there's moments. We all have those moments, right? Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Now, Jesus could say, I am the only person who knows what's going on, but he actually just goes a little bit further, and he says, what things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition... Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So let's start with just talking about the situation we've got here. We've got a couple of guys who are discouraged, followers of Jesus who... Um, can't believe how the story ended. I mean, they had, so high, they had such high hopes. They had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, to free them from the Roman tyranny, to finally uh, set up a new kingdom, to change their lives forever. And he was powerful, and he was obviously from God. And then he was crucified and dead. So they're discouraged. Their hope has been dashed. It says they have downcast faces. <laughs> Maybe we don't describe it that way. But you know when someone has a downcast face, you see it. See, they're trying to make sense of it all. Why, if Jesus was such a mighty prophet, why did God allow him to die? Jesus' suffering and dying didn't look like the work of God to them. It's just like us trying to make sense of our lives. Sometimes we look at what's going on in our lives and we say, why is this happening? This isn't the way it's supposed to go. I, I, I thought if I did this, this, and this, it would add up to this, but I ended up over here, and this isn't what I thought would happen, and this isn't the struggles I thought I'd be having. This isn't, what is God doing? What is God doing? It doesn't make any sense. What is God really up to? 
See, these guys were, were struggling to recognize God's presence in a very troubling situation. Not only that, but they were going in the wrong direction. If we go further in the story, if you, if you know uh, what happens at the end of this story and then into Luke writes two books in the New Testament. He writes the book of Luke. That one's really easy to spot because it's named after him. But the second one's called Acts. And so he, he's a real historian, and uh, he's, a, he's a physician. He's also a historian. And he writes both of these books for a guy named Theophilus so he can understand the story of Jesus and also the history that happens after Jesus of his early disciples. And um, so... If you know the rest of what Luke writes, you'll realize that they're going in the wrong direction. They've left Jerusalem and they're going to Emmaus. But what God is going to do in the, in the days to come is going to happen in Jerusalem. But this is often when we get discouraged in life what we do. We sort of say, well, I thought there was a purpose. I thought there was a meaning. I thought there was a reason for why I was doing what I'm doing. But now I don't see it anymore. And I'm discouraged. And I think I'm just going to throw in the towel. I think I'm going to give up on the cause. I think I'm going to walk away uh, from relationship with people who were on mission with me, who had this similar purpose that we shared. I'm just going to go home. And I believe that this story is a story of God's merciful, merciful redirection of two guys who've lost their way. They're going in the wrong direction, away from what God is going to do, The Holy Spirit's going to come to Jerusalem and empower his followers, and they're leaving, and they're isolated, and they're separate from Jesus' other followers. And then they're talking about, this is, again, I find this sort of funny, they're talking about others who didn't see Jesus. They say, "Well, well, our companions went to the tomb, but they didn't see Jesus. Can you imagine telling Jesus that? They didn't even see Jesus. And Jesus like, really? Didn't see him? No, they didn't see him. Nobody's seen Jesus. Really? Nobody's seen him anywhere. Not right in front of their eyes or anything. Like they haven't seen Jesus. How, how much fun would it be if, no one, if you could do something, like, like do something, snap your fingers, and nobody could recognize you? Wouldn't it be fun to just ask people what they really think? What do you think about that, Steve? Actually, maybe not. Maybe not. I just thought about it. <laughs> maybe not fun at all. Maybe the feedback you get, you wouldn't want to get. You wouldn't want to get. But for Jesus, not so bad, right? Jesus is, keeps going on. He can interrupt at any point. He can say, hey, hey, this is me. You're talking to Jesus. But you know what? I think the reason why they were kept from recognizing Jesus and the reason why Jesus continues to go along with this is for one reason, and I think it's because if they had known this was Jesus, I think they would have edited their comments. I think they would have filtered their words. And I don't think they would have got to that deep, deep longing and despair that was in them for their lives to have significance, for what they had given themselves to to matter. They wanted to belong to the kingdom of God, this great thing that was God was doing in the world, and suddenly everything had come to a screeching halt. And if Jesus had shown up, they might have been like, okay, 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 we're all good. But this allowed them to touch on their deepest longings and their deepest pain, their deep disappointment. 
They weren't filtering it. They were telling what they thought was an apparent stranger, but they were getting really, really real. So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Let's read some more. It says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, these are the verses in the Bible you wish had emojis because is he angry? Is he laughing? You don't know, right? Uh, someone in my life group said this week, we were going through these, looking at these scriptures and they, and they said, I think it's sort of like a, a mother talking to a child and saying, oh, how silly. And I thought, that could be. That could be. I don't know how, if he's being confrontative or he's just sort of laughing at the reality of really how foolish this is, right? How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So last week, Pastor Dave Moore did an incredible job of just walking us through this early part. I'm, I know a lot of, many people might not have been here last week, so I'm sort of just coming out back over some familiar territory uh, for us. But it's very interesting when Jesus... Uh, Jesus is addressing one of the problems that they have with what happened. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He's saying, you're you're slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. Isn't that what the prophets spoke? Isn't that what we said? If you read, of course, they wouldn't have the New Testament. They would have the Old Testament. If you read what's in the Old Testament, that first big chunk of the Bible, if you read this part of the Bible, you would see that the pattern of God that he set forth that is going to be, uh, we see it in the Old Testament that we're going to see in Jesus is that first comes suffering and then comes um, exaltation or glorification or, or victory. First comes suffering and, and then comes victory. And so it says he used the scriptures And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now, it doesn't tell us. I mean, lots of people have said, oh, man, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for this conversation. To have Jesus go through the Old Testament and say, see this? That points to me. That points to me. That points to me. This is how this talks about me. This is how, because everything in the Bible, I mean, if you wanted to, like, the Old Testament is like one, it's like one big giant, like imagine those big foam fingers you have at the football game. Yeah, we're number one. Imagine a big giant foam finger that points forward and says, this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. So Jesus, maybe he said, oh, okay, the first promise in the Bible, guys, it's that a descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. First, it says the serpent will, 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 will bite or poison his heel, but his heel will crush his head. So there's going to be suffering, but it's going to lead to victory. That's in the beginning. Well, go through Genesis. Go through Abraham. Oh, every Jewish person knows the story of Abraham and his only son, Isaac, that he surrendered to God to die. And then God, in his graciousness, provided another sacrifice. He says, oh, 
Didn't you see? It was surrender. It was humiliation. It was suffering. But then God brought victory out of it. Think about Joseph who saved the, the, the Jewish people in Egypt. Who saved actually even the Egyptians from, their, from the famine, the seven years of famine. He had to go through. He was enslaved. He was mistreated. He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. It was suffering. And then God raised him up to a place, of an exalted place, to a place of victory, a place of, of authority. Are you seeing the pattern, guys? Imagine Jesus saying this to them. Are you seeing the pattern? Are you seeing all these things? Think about the Passover lamb. The lamb that's, that's, that dies, but it's a symbol of something much greater. And because of the lamb's death, death doesn't come to the households of Israel. Can you see all these patterns? Can you see them? Suffering, humiliation, death leads to exaltation, victory, authority. All of these are a a snapshot of me. Well, he's not saying me yet, of course. He hasn't revealed himself. All these things are a snapshot of this Jesus that you talk about. So use the scriptures to show them. And this is often how God opens our eyes. He opens our eyes through the scriptures. Uh, John uh, 5, 39 to 40 says it this. It says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So he was speaking to very educated religious people. And he said, you are combing through the Bible. You're combing through the Old Testament. You're combing through the scriptures to, to, to get life out of it, to understand it. You're memorizing it, just like this morning. Good thing. But somehow you are missing the point of it. You're missing that this is all pointing to Jesus. This is all pointing to me, he'd, he'd be saying, if he, hadn't reveal, he wasn't revealing himself yet. But you're missing, when he was telling The Pharisees, he said, these scriptures testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You know what? I often read stuff where people, of of people who are very highly educated, and even highly educated in um, some of the practices of understanding the Bible. But you know, it's so easy to, to be very intellectually groomed in your understanding of this book, yet forget what the point of it is. Sometimes people uh, approach the Bible like it's just a storybook. Like, I mean, a collection of stories. It's like, oh yeah, there's David and Goliath and there's Noah and the ark and there's Jonah and the whale and there's Dith and the story and story and story and story. And every one of those things is pointing to Jesus. But we just think, oh, well, let's, what's the moral that I can take out of David and Goliath? Oh, yeah, don't be afraid to stand up to a big bully. Good, I got it. No. It's all talking about a greater David who takes on a greater Goliath, our sin, the sins of the world, and conquers. Right? It's all these things point to Jesus, and sometimes we miss it. No matter how much, how educated or how, how smart we are, We miss what's there. 
Uh, this became very real to me in, um, what was it? I guess it was in the early 90s, probably about 93, 93 or 94. I was traveling with a Bible school team um, up into Alberta, and we were doing vacation Bible school programs in churches. And the one church we were going to be in for a week uh, was in a small town, probably about 3,000 people in Alberta. And uh, when we got there, the, I got to stay in the, the home of the minister who was in, in charge of the church there. And he told me his life story. And his life story went like this. He wanted to become a minister. So he went to university and he took the religious education program at the university. And he graduated and he had his degree. And then he went to work in a church. And um, he said he viewed himself sort of like a religious social worker. And uh, he went into serving in this church, and every week he got up and he would open the Bible and he would teach out of it. And um, several years in, he's watching TV late at night, and on comes this broadcast of the Billy Graham crusade. And so Billy Graham, who's this uh, guy who preaches out of the Bible, is preaching, and he's talking, and he's, he's speaking out of John chapter 3. And I'll just give you a couple of the verses that he used that night. Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Billy Graham had said that. And then Billy Graham backed up in that same chapter of, of John 3 and said how Jesus said, Verily, I tr uh, uh, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Or another way of saying it might be that they come alive to God on the inside, a work that only God can do. Here's this guy, super well-educated. Every week, he teaches people out of the Bible. He's sitting watching his TV, and suddenly it hits him. That has never happened to me. I don't think what Billy Graham is describing, being born again or coming alive to God in the way that he's talking about, has never happened. Somehow, I missed that along the trip. That roadside food stand I was supposed to stop at, I didn't stop at. I did everything else, but this I did not do. And he got down on his knees in front of his TV and he prayed. And he said, God, I need you to make me new. I need you to make me new in you. What he told me was that the next time he got up to speak and to teach out of the Bible... Suddenly, words were jumping off the page at him. Concepts were there that he hadn't seen before. He said, I was blinded. I was blinded before. There was stuff I could only see because the Spirit of God was now working in me to show me the things I couldn't see before. And it changed my church. Then I started to see what God was wanting for everybody, that he wanted everyone to be born again, to, to become alive to God on the inside. And so I began to declare that and, and to speak that, just like Billy Graham had done. And one by one, people in my church began to give their lives to God. Not just go to church to be religious, but surrender themselves 100% to Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, as the leader of their lives. To me, when he told me his story, I just thought, wow, I was like six when I became a believer. So I, I don't have an experience of reading the Bible before that. 
I don't have that same experience, but I said, you know what? It just confirmed to me all the things the scripture, that, that the Bible says about how God opens people's eyes. Let me share a few verses for you. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, so we're talking about God's creation, also made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You want to see where God is most glorious? You want to see God's glory in its, in its full power? Look at the face of Jesus. Look at Jesus' work. Look at what Jesus did. Look at who Jesus is. The glory of God is, is brilliantly seen and displayed in the face of Christ. And so God does an illuminating work in us on the inside where he suddenly shows us the value of Jesus, the value of Christ. I mean, there's lots of ways you can come to the Bible. You can come to the Bible and say, wow, I, I, I'm going to learn some principles for my life. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be inspired for it by some people who did great things. I might be able to pick up some things about parenting and marriage and uh, how to be a good neighbor. That's all in there. But the whole thing taken together is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the God's glory as seen in the face of Christ. Let me give you another verse. Ephesians 1, 17 to 18. It says, I keep asking. Now this is actually... One of Jesus' followers, Paul, he's writing this about, uh, he's writing this for people who are already Christians, who've already been born again. He's saying, you know what? Even though we've been born again, it's important for us not to become dull or uh, for there to become um, some sort of hazy uh, film over our view of who Christ is. And so he writes, he says, I keep asking, I keep asking, this is a repeated prayer, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So God's remedy for the blinding effects of, or, or the, the blindedness that we can live in is the enlightenment of God. And his scripture is instrumental in doing that. You say, I want, I want to see Jesus more, read the Bible more. I want to I uh, walk in greater faith and trust in God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the the word of God. That's, where, that's how we, we grow in our faith is through the word of God. So Jesus tells them about the scriptures. He walks them through the scriptures. He says, this all points to me. This is where it's heading. And the, the weird disappointment that you're feeling right now because you see it ending in suffering, that's not the end of the story, but it's a necessary part of the story. It's a pattern that we see through the whole Bible. And it's now being fulfilled in me. Now he still hasn't revealed himself to them. So he, let's read a little bit more. He said, I'll just 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. Again, I find Jesus so, like, lighthearted post-resurrection. If you read the stuff about Jesus after resurrection, it seems like before, and okay, if you're about to take the sins of the world on yourself, you're going to be somber. You're going to be serious. I find him serious, but there's a lightness about Jesus that you notice there in, in just like he's, He's showing up and surprising people. He's playing along. He's, uh, you know, Jesus, Peter's out fishing. He doesn't even know Jesus is on the beach, and he's cooking up breakfast. He's like, this is going to be a good breakfast. This is going to be the breakfast. Like, Jesus is making him breakfast. He's out on the night shift, because that's when he was fishing at night. He's on the night shift, and there's his friend Jesus on the shore, cooking him up breakfast, waiting for him to get off night shift so they can have a little roadside food stand of their own. And at that breakfast, he's going to take Peter, whose shame is at like level 10 because of how he was such a coward and ran away when the pressure was on and when everyone was arresting Jesus and taking him away, how, how Peter ditched him, denied him, even denied he even knew him. He says, this breakfast, I'm going to feed my buddy and I'm going to restore our relationship. Not even our, just our relationship, I am going to... I am going to do something about that crippling shame that is keeping him from being a leader in the kingdom of God. All right, got to flip the fish. All right, stir the hash browns. (laughs) Jesus is making breakfast for his buddy as he comes off the night shift. Jesus is is showing up here and there, and oh, it's so great. It's just just like, hey, guys. He, it seems like he loves to surprise people in this post-resurrection era. He's just showing up and saying, hey, it's me. It's really me. They're, later on in this passage, you see, they're like, is it really you? And there's check his hands to see if there's the wounds. Yeah, it's really him. Even in his resurrection body, those things are still evident that he's him. And then I love the test. He's like, wait, I'll prove it's me. Anyone got any food? <laughs> That's later on in the chapter if you read on. So he eats some fish in front of him, broiled fish, it says. He's like, See? It's me. I love it. I love the way Jesus is so full of life and he's just, he's just loving people, and he, but he is allowing, he is working out a transformation in these guys as they get used to this new reality, as they recalibrate their brains that the suffering and death of Jesus is not the end of the story, but it's the beginning of the story. It's a radical new concept that they're getting their heads around, and Jesus is, is helping them do it. So he, they, they come to the village as they're going, and Jesus continued on as if he were going forward, farther. Again, Jesus is like, well, see you guys. He's giving them an opportunity to practice hospitality, right? So the normal good thing to do would be to say, hey, stay here. And they do that. So they urged him. Got my notes mixed up here. They urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. Okay, it's too late. Nobody should be out walking at this time of night. It's really not reasonable. It's not rational. You really should come and stay with us. So he went to stay with them. So he gives them an opportunity to operate in hospitality, and they do. And when... He was at the table with him. He took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it 
and he began to give it to them. And it was then that their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Can you imagine these guys who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus, he saw him, they saw him, would have saw that they would have had lots of eating adventures. If your traveling was hiking and you hiked all over Israel, you would have had lots of little roadside food experiences. You would have lots of moments where Jesus said, Okay, let's time, it's time, let's stop, let's eat. And now, Lord, I thank you for this bread. Break it and pass it out. They would have seen this again and again and again and again. Even though they are kept from recognizing him physically to this point, when Jesus did what he'd always done, suddenly they recognized him. Suddenly they, they saw who he was. Jesus already opened their hearts through the scriptures, but now he opened their eyes. And they realized he is with us. He is with us. That's a challenge in our lives when we go through confusing situations, when we go through troubling times or um, things that really perplex us. We, we, we sometimes forget that he is with us. In fact, he promised his followers that he would never leave them nor forsake them. They will, he would always be with them. I found this quite fascinating to look into this a little bit more, and I won't get into it too much, but I, I've thought back to situations in my life where I thought, oh, that was hard. And then, but now what I know now is that he was with me. And this was super difficult. But you know what? I wasn't alone. He was with me. And, and maybe in some of those situations where they were awful and terrible and I, and I was having a really hard time, maybe in some of those situations, I just made assumptions about that scenario, that I was all alone, that God wasn't there and that I was just toughing it out with no support. So different to think back and think, if I had only been aware of the presence of God in my life, how might those scenarios have rolled out differently? I'm pretty sure that any negative spiritual forces in the world would want those things to go badly for me. In fact, it might be, though, in those situations that I might begin to believe lies about myself, about my relationships, and even about God through those experiences. But at the same time, I have to believe that God, who didn't abandon me, who was with me in those situations, would also have a plan for those moments. We sang it this morning. In every situation, you're working it for our good. We sang that song. That God would want to, in that situation, counteract any lie that I might come to believe through it. But he'd want to bring truth to bear to that situation. In fact, I've actually done this this might sound crazy. I've actually gone back and thought back to some of the painful memories of my past, and I've asked myself this question. What's the lie that got into me through that? What's the thing that I began to believe about myself, about people around me, and about God through that situation when I was vulnerable and when I thought I was alone? 
And then the next question is, and what is the truth? If I was attentive to God, if I was listening to God, if I was aware of his presence in that moment, what is the truth I would have heard from him? What is the message that he would have communicated to me? What is the truth that he would have brought that would have counteracted the lie so the wound that happened there would have been mitigated? I've actually done this and found it to be wonderfully restorative in my life. I've come to realize that my anxiety, my fear, my insecurity, that Jesus was there to speak to all of it. He's there to speak to all of it. In fact, I've gone through a good, a good amount of healing in this area of my life. Where I've thought back to some of these memories, and I'm not, you know, maybe some of you think this sounds dangerous, but I went back to some of these memories and I thought, you know what, Jesus, what do you want to say to me about that memory? What do you want to speak into my life about that memory? How do you want to correct what got uncorrected? How do you want to untwist me? And he's done some amazing things in my life. He's spoken truth into my heart about who I am, about who he is, about my fears, about my anxieties, and about my insecurities. It's just all based on a simple reality that he is with us. He is with us. He's there to speak to us in those moments. We don't always pay attention. We're not always aware. But he is with us. We're going to read Psalm 23 together. This is a he is with us verse. Um, I was at uh, Marguerite Maynard's funeral yesterday with lots of you who were there as well. Ron Francis did a great job of leading the funeral. And then we read through Psalm 23. We did it in the King James Version. We'll do NIV this morning. Uh, but we, we went through it. And as he stopped a few times, and then people just kept saying it because most of the people in the crowd had memorized it in the old King James Version. And it was just like so wonderful, this reality of just these simple words. Can we pull that up there? Okay. Let's read it together. Okay? Let's read it together. Okay. I'll follow along here. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest... Let's stop, let's stop, let's stop. All that was good. Green pastures, still waters. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is saying God is with you in every situation. I don't know your story, but I bet that if I had a roadside food stand sit down with you and we looked eye to eye and you got real with me, you could tell me some horrific times in your life when you walked through a dark valley. You probably could tell me stories that I've never experienced and I could say, wow, I haven't walked in your shoes. I don't know what you've experienced there, but that sounds like a dark valley. But the truth is, in that valley, God was there as a shepherd. As a shepherd. David, who experienced all sorts of dark valleys, imagine serving a king who wants you dead. 
That's a hard job. I don't know, maybe you've had similar employers. <laughs> he came back to this reality that he, though he was a shepherd and became a king, he knew about leadership, needed a shepherd. He needed a shepherd. I don't care how much responsibility you have in life. Are you the boss? Are you the leader? Does everyone look up to you? You need a shepherd. And God makes himself available to you. You know, when we, when we uh, have a funeral, it is a real perspective giver because you get to the very end and you go, you know, at the very end, people did great things, impressive things, things we applaud them for. But at the end of the day, what does it come down to? You have a family around you, and hopefully you're a child of God. Hopefully you've come to that point in your life where God has made you alive to himself. You've entered into that relationship with him. That's where the rubber meets the road. Have you accepted God's shepherding of your life, his leadership, his guidance that he wants to give you? Or have you been that sheep that just keeps going its own way? He, he makes his leadership, his guidance, his love, his, his relationship as a good father in your life available. And anyone who receives him, to those who believe on his name, they have the right to become children of God. You can become a child of God. I shared this a little, few weeks ago. I have a cousin. She works in a women's prison. She does that as a volunteer. That's, you know, she's a mom. She has other things she does. But God has put a specific call in her life to go into a women's prison week after week after week after week. And her favorite verse to share with them there is, you can become a child of God. You can become a child of God. How do you see yourself? I'm here to tell you about a new identity that you can walk in. The best identity. Becoming a son or a daughter of God. Okay, let's keep reading. We'll start back at verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what God is, is, is offering and promising to us that if we receive his leadership, if we say, yes, shepherd me, lead me, guide me. I called the shots so far. I've been trying to navigate on this road trip on my own, but I must admit, I need your leadership. I need your guidance. He says, his goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. For those who accept his leadership and love in their lives. And and we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's the same promise that the minister got down on his knees responded to, that he could have eternal life because of what Jesus had done, that he could be made alive to God and his life could be transformed. 
It's what God offers each and every one of us. You know, at the end of the story, the followers, these guys who were on road tripping with Jesus, it says, they got up. It says, their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon, which he had already done that. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. You know, you can have peace with God. God gives that. God makes that possible. God the Father and Jesus embrace the plan to bring you and I back into relationship with God. And it was going to come through Jesus' suffering, death, and then the resurrection. This same hope that took these guys, remember how they were downcast and that their faces were downcast, they were discouraged in their hearts. Now they've got hearts on fire. Now they're doing crazy things like running to Jerusalem, seven miles, 11 kilometers, late at night when nobody should be traveling on those roads. Now they've got purpose and meaning and, and, and they're, they're excited and they join together with other people who are also sons and daughters of God. Jesus comes into their situation and he does a 180. They're leaving Jerusalem and he says, come on. And they run back to where they're supposed to be. I, I don't know what your journey has taken you. But no matter how far you've gone down that route, Jesus is here to help you turn a 180 and come back to him. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how far you've gone or what you've done. His grace is that big that he'll bring you back to himself. And that's his heart's desire. He died so he could be in relationship with you. So that you could have peace with God. And you could have eternal life with him forever. It's all available to you. The response that's required from us is belief. And you say, well, just to believe that intellectually? Well, it's more than that. It's trust, really. It's trust. It's saying, I, I'm trusting in that. I'm trusting in what Jesus did. I'm not trusting in what I can do. I'm trusting in what Jesus did. I'm receiving what he's done. It's really a gift. I can't earn it. And... As he says, follow me, I'm beginning. I'm taking my very first steps in following him. I'm taking my very few steps. And you can do that today. I wanna, I'm going to close our time in prayer. And we, I think the worship team is going to come back for one. Oh, we're going to do communion. Yes. Thank you. We're going to take communion together. But I want to pray with you first. Okay. And if this, uh, if you're there, you just sort of say, I, I know today is my day to give my life to Jesus. I realize I've been putting this off, or maybe you haven't been putting this off. You're just saying, 
I know that this is what I need to do, that I'm going to pray a prayer. You can repeat it to, your, to God in your heart. You can whisper it under your breath. You can paraphrase it in your own words. The main thing is not the words. The main thing is that your heart is saying yes to God, yes to his offer of salvation, yes to becoming his child. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing what I couldn't do. I couldn't pay for my own sin, my own uh, waywardness, how I was like a sheep that wandered off. I couldn't, I couldn't do the 180 and bring myself back. But you can. And you did. You provided the access for me to have relationship with God again through your death on the cross. And through that, I can be forgiven of all my sin and brought into right relationship with you and begin this new life of having a shepherd that is with me in all circumstances. And so I, I surrender my old way of doing things. I surrender my, uh, my going my own way. And I take up your offer, this gift of eternal life, this gift of walking with you, of, of living for you, not living for myself anymore, but living for you. And I walk in that today. I'm choosing you, Jesus. I'm choosing you. Lord, I, I ask that you would help me every step of the way. I pray, I, sh- I pray you'd show me just even the first step. I don't need to know it all. I just need to know the next step in following you. But I give my life to you today and ask that you'd guide me like a shepherd on the journey that's ahead. I ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. If you made a decision to give your life to Christ today, would you, I just ask you one favor, would you please tell somebody who you know has already done that? So maybe you came to church with somebody who's already done that, or you know someone in your family that's already done that, or you know someone who's here. If you don't know anyone who's here, talk to me, because you could probably pick me out of a crowd now. So talk to me, and I'd love to chat with you about it. In fact, uh, our prayer teams will come up at the end of the service. Any of them would love to pray with you and talk with you about that as well. At this time, we're going to take the example of Jesus. He said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, to take symbols of his body and blood, and we're going to remember his sacrifice together. So as the worship team plays, I invite you to take a moment, examine your heart, Come and receive these symbols of his body and blood, and then we'll take them together at the end.
Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you that this was 